Guess what? Did you notice something that didn't exist today that has existed for like the past 10 weeks? Sermon bumper. That's right. Why? Because we're done with the sermon series of uh, uh, the 12 disciples. And the next kind of village-sanctioned sermon series begins uh, the Sunday after uh, Labor Day, Labor Day weekend. So I have, this could be dangerous, I have the freedom to preach pretty much whatever I want. Oh, well, well, maybe not whatever I want, but kind of within the confines of this and staying true to it, um, four weeks. Four, so we're going to walk through a very brief four-week sermon series. Let me set it up. I've shared uh, in, in various venues, certainly from here, but in other venues, I've talked a, a little bit, I've talked briefly about my BC days, my before Christ days. Uh, for me, what was a very intense um, five-year journey toward, I didn't know it at the time, but toward Christ. And um, if, if uh, you know my story, I... I was intensely searching, deeply searching for, like, what's at the bottom? What's foundational? Those kinds of things, like, what is this life all about anyway? You, you guys ever think about those questions? Like, why are we here? Right? Is it to live our our three score and ten, our 70, 80 years, 90 years, whatever it is, and then pass from the scene, and that's the end of us? Is that it? Food for worms, lads? Food for worms? Or is there more? It's those kinds of questions that I was really interested in and wrestling with and tasted um, what the world had to offer in a big way. In the midst of that, now I have 40-plus years of reflection on what I'm about to share with you. In the midst of that, at about 21 years old, a mere lad, at 21 years old, I moved to Fort Collins, Fort Collins, Colorado. A friend of mine had moved out there and uh, stayed with him, lived there for a while, um, found a job. Still, the, the, the searching didn't go away. It was still there. It traveled with me. And I'll never forget... I came upon a book, or rather, a series of books. Uh, the first one was called The Hobbit. And the next one was actually three books, was actually a trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And even in the, like smack dab in the middle of my BC days, I began to read these books. And I would, I would literally sit in my salmon-colored, super-comfy beanbag chair for like four or five hours at a stretch and read these books. I quite literally could not put them down, but I couldn't tell you why. I could not. I can tell you why now. But I could not tell you why, in my B.C. days, these stories, these particular stories, got in me. 
If you're familiar with, uh, with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and how Tolkien weaves a tale, that stuff doesn't stay on the pages, does it? It gets in you, and it got in me. And I found myself asking myself, what, what is it about? I've never read books like this. I've never had books. I've never had stories impact me like these stories did. I knew they were messing with me, but I didn't know why. That was my indoctrination, my initiation, if you will, into the power of story. I don't know if this is a newsflash for you, but if the Christian story is true, and I believe it is, if the Christian story is true, then among other things, what that means is all of us, whether we realize it or not, we are storied creatures. There is actually a story that we are part of, a story that has been, is being written by God himself. That's, that's the biblical assertion, that there is a story, singular, capital S, the story, capital T, capital S, among which our individual stories begin to make sense. If we don't understand the big story, we are not going to understand in significant ways our smaller story. Does that make sense? We tracking with that? If the, if the Christian story is true, then we are storied creatures. And I suggest to you that is one of the main reasons why stories so deeply resonate with us. So I, I've said this before. <clears throat> this book, this story, is not a set of do's and don'ts. There are do's and don'ts contained in the story. This story is not a set of propositional truths. There are propositional truths, but they're embedded in this story. I think we do an injustice to this story when we don't primarily see it as a story. Make sense? Is that good? Is that fair? Now, it's much more than a story. I get that. It's God's revelation of himself to humanity and all that, all that goes with that. But if this is anything, it is a story. And so what I want to do in these four weeks that I've been given great liberty, I want to hit the four major plot pieces, plot lines, the four of this story. Now, as I was praying through, because I knew I was going to have this freedom a couple months ago, as I was praying through, I'm like, Lord, really? Four, four weeks devoting 40, 45 minutes or so to each plot? Lord, will that even do it, will that even do it justice? 
So I want to say on the front end, there is much, 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 there are volumes of books. There is much more that could be said. But my intent in this kind of mini-series is to help us, buy, if we haven't yet, is to help us buy into the reality that this, if it is anything, this book is a story, number one. Number two, if true, we are storied creatures. Number three, since we are storied creatures, what is the story and what is our story's fit in the story? So I'm just throwing that out on the front end. I don't intend to do complete justice to all four major plot pieces. Can't do it. But, but I do hope to evoke a hunger in you that will cause you or compel you to continue to pursue these various plot lines. <clears throat> so the, the, the four uh, plot movements of the story are creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes people see it in three parts, creation, fall, redemption. I'm going to put it into, I favor the, the kind of the four-part segmenting out. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, sometimes referred to as restoration. Creation, the, how did things start? Every worldview, every religion puts forth. Here's how things began. It's not just the Christian worldview that has to back that up. Every religion, every worldview puts forth, here's how it started, and secondly, here's what went wrong. So from the Christian perspective, <clears throat> the Christian story, the original emphasis here, good creation. The original good creation. And that's where we're going we're to walk through that plot movement today, creation, then fall. The perversion of that good creation through a rebellion that the story calls sin. Third, redemption. And this is important. Hear this carefully. The beginning of the restoration of that good creation. Two important words. In Christ. Crucial. So it's the beginning of the restoration of that good creation in Christ, and then the fourth plot movement, the completion of the restoration of that good creation, and again, in Christ. So that's where we're headed. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, interestingly, the story begins in a garden and ends where? In a city begins in a garden and ends in a city. <clears throat> so putting, putting these pieces in place at the beginning of the sermon series, I want to put another piece in place. I think C.S. Lewis captures it well, so well, when he says this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Why? Why, C.S. Lewis? Why do you believe that? Not only because I see it, but also because by it, I see everything else. It, it, C.S. Lewis is talking about the Christian story. He didn't always see 
the Christian story. World War I turned him into an atheist. And for a couple of decades, he pursued that, but he began to slowly head towards theism. There were movements in between that and ultimately to biblical theism. I mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was instrumental in Lewis coming to saving faith in Christ. They had a conversation. Hmm. This is the power of story. They had a conversation after a, an, an inkling meeting at the pub, and they're walking back to C.S. Lewis's place. And Tolkien just, just throws this out there because C.S. Lewis was a big myth guy. And by myth, I don't mean falsehoods. I mean the ancient myths. He was so into... He's, that like resonated with him. Why do, these, why do these fake stories get in me? And he pursued that and he told those stories and he taught those stories. So Tolkien posited this. He just threw this... C.S. Lewis, what if, just what if, the power of a what if, right? What if this Christian story is the myth that became fact? What if the God actually came down into time and space, into human history, put on human flesh, and actually walked among us, actually dwelt among us. C.S. Lewis, what if that's true? Tolkien knew Lewis, and Lewis couldn't put that down mentally. And that was kind of the final piece that God used to bring C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. It was the power of story. One more piece to put into place here, and then we'll get into it. Near the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, near the very end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, we, we, we read this. It's John's words. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. This is a guy who was giving him information. But he said to me, whoa, 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 don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony here, witness, who hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. Worship God. Now watch this. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me break that down for you, what's being said here. Jesus is the key to unlocking this story. Get Jesus wrong and you'll never get this story right. Get Jesus right and you have a great chance of coming to understand the story as well as your place, your fit in the story. So in, in each of these four plot movements, will seek to identify where's Jesus, right? So if he's the key that unlocks this story, then where is he? Are you ready? Should we do this? We good? All right. 
Open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the very, 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 very first book, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. So Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses. We are going to start where the story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I don't think I can overstate what I'm about to say. This story does not begin in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. That is not where the story starts. If we're going to do this story justice, we need to start where the story starts. Fair? Right? The story doesn't start with God so loved the world. The story begins with an assertion. In the beginning, comma, God. Dot, dot, dot. That's where this story says that this story begins. It simply makes an assertion and doesn't... Now, it will present evidence for that assertion, but it's simply, boom, here it is. In the beginning, God. Now, it is not just this story. It is not just this Christian story that has to back itself up. Every story out there, has to come up with, really, really? How so? Says who? It's a great question, right? Says who? All worldviews, all religions, so important that you get this, put forth something or someone as self-existing. Another word for that is eternal. All worldviews, all religions put forth something or someone as self-existing. The biblical story is no exception to that. There is something that all worldviews put forth, all religions put forth as uncreated. Now, you're going to have to follow me here. Self-creation is a contradiction in terms, is it not? For something to be created, something must already be. For something to be created, something must already exist. Self-creation is a contradiction in terms. Logically, there must be what I'm going to call an uncaused cause. And again, it's not just this story that puts that forth. Every single story out there that is the, basically the story of everything, every single story out there puts forth something as uncaused. So far, so good? We tracking? Oh, so good. Okay. Before Jake pops this on the screen, let me preface it. What you're you're about to see is a a philosophical formula. 
It's called a syllogism. Typically, it contains, on the front end, two premises. If both premises are true, if they follow, then the conclusion, the therefore, necessarily follows. If the two premises are true, then the conclusion necessarily follows. Okay, so in context of what we're talking about, check this out. I'm going to walk through it with you. Nothing comes from nothing. In other words, something cannot come from no thing. Let that sit. Maybe for some of you, the Sound of Music song is ringing in you. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. It's a bad song, man. It's bad philosophy. Um, nothing comes from nothing. You can't get something from nothing. If there's nothing, there's nothing. Nothing isn't a thing. And yet, something is. Right? Would you agree with that? Like, is there something? Is there, are there a lot of some things? Right? Nothing comes from nothing. Is that true? It's a fair statement, right? Yes, something is. Is that true? Yes. The conclusion then necessarily follows. Therefore, something always was. Something or someone must be eternal. Must be self-existing. Notice I did not say self-caused. I said self-existing has always been. Now, I grant you, as finite beings, as fixed within time and space beings, like I don't, what is that even, eternity? What is that? What does that even mean? Like I can spit out the concept, right? I can give you a definition, but what is it? Is anybody tracking with me on that? What does, like I go back, time word. In eternity, there's no going back, there's no going forward, there just is. Eternity is always now. It's this God who says, in the beginning, God, like the author of the story says, in, be, in, in the beginning, God, I am. And we're going to get to that. I am. I am. There's no... When we use time words to describe this particular God, that's for us to try and get our minds around eternity. We have to use time words. In the past, God... Um, in the past is for us because we're space and time creatures. There's no past for God. There's no future for Yahweh. There's only now. There is only the eternal present. Let me pause here. I can worship a God who blows my mind. If I'm going to deem something 
or someone worthy of my worship, it had better not be somebody like me. I will not intentionally worship somebody like me. Now, it doesn't mean that I haven't worshipped somebody like me, but you get the... Right? If I'm going to deem somebody like, that I'm willing to die for, better not be like me. This God often surprises me. This God blows my mind. That's a piece of evidence for me that causes me to think maybe, just maybe, this is the right God. Just maybe. All right. The story claims that God, this particular God, Yahweh, the biblical God, is the sole source of the created order. No other gods compete with Him. God's small g, plural. No other gods compete with Him. No natural forces exist on their own. Check out Colossians. Nothing receives its essence or its existence from another source. Nothing is pre-existing or eternal except the self-existing one, the one who gave Moses his name. I am who I am. That's the claim. That's all wrapped up in these first four words of this particular story. In the beginning, God. Everything I've just shared with you is wrapped up in those four words. That's why we must start where the story starts. You don't, you don't open a book and start it in the middle. John 3.16 is the middle of the story. For God so loved the world. What, 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 who's God? What's love? What's sin? Who's Jesus? Why do I need all that? Why do I need a... We have no context for that. So we're starting where the story begins. <clears throat> Let me throw a side note in here. And we really, really have to be careful. And I'm going I'm to throw a big term at you and give you its definition. The book of Genesis was written to a specific people who had a particular cosmology in view. Now, cosmology is a study of the cosmos, the study of the universe, right? The Hebrews, the ancient Israelites, who were the recipients of this particular story, the initial recipients, they had a cosmology. They understood the cosmos in a very, very different way than we understand the universe a very different way so let me ask you a question what should God have done if he wants to if he wants to make himself known to think human being an ant if you wanted to make yourself known to an ant how would you do that how would you go about that the ant has no conception of you like zip, nada, none. How would you? Somehow, someway, you must stoop to the ant's level. And if I could put it this way, speak a language that the ant 
can understand. That's a pretty poor parallel, but that's God and us, man. How is God going to make himself known to us? He wants to reveal himself. How is he going to do that? He's going to have to, how low can you go? He's going to have to condescend. He's going to have to stoop to our level and enter our inner history, right? Enter our time and spaceness. And so he chose to do that with the ancient Israelites. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but especially chapter 1, God is... He's speaking a language, a cosmology that they can understand. He's stooping to their level. It's not the cosmology as we understand it now. Why do I say that? Because Christians make, my opinion, a very, very big mistake here. The book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, could care less about the age of the earth. Doesn't really care. It's not what it's about. But somehow, someway, we make it about that. It is so not what it's about. And we have, there's a word, anachronistic. Very important word. There will be a quiz at the end. Anachronistic. It means belonging to a period other than the period being portrayed. Here's what we want to do. With our 21st century cosmology, we want to take our understanding of the cosmos and superimpose it on Genesis 1. You can't do that. You must let the story speak for itself. The story is embedded, Genesis 1 is embedded in an ancient Near Eastern cosmology that's radically different from ours. Let it speak for itself. Can you tell that's a little soapbox item for me? Bothers me when Christians want to look at Genesis and say, well, here's how old the earth is. I'm not saying that's not a worthy pursuit. I just don't think you can use Genesis to do it. I don't, I mean, I, I, think, I think Christians can disagree on the age of the earth, right? That's not a hill to die on. It's not. And I'm not going to tell you where I've landed because, anyway. Okay, is, that, is that fair? When we walk through this ancient Near Eastern, we are the ones that have to adjust to it. Not it adjusting to our 21st century understanding of the cosmos. Okay, I beat that to death. All right. A few insights from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Number one, God, so important. God is transcendent. He is other than His creation. Um, Eastern religions today, specifically religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, essentially say, teach what's called monism. Everything is one. All we are is an emanation from the one. All is God and God is all. Right? No, that's not what the biblical story teaches. The biblical story teaches that God creation gap God is distinct from his creation he is other than his creation he is above and beyond his creation that's how the story that's what the story asserts God is not his creation now that is not to don't go too far the other way that is not to say that creation bears no resemblance to God because it does 
as a painter to his or her painting, so through the painting, we can come to learn some things about the artist. God is the ultimate artist. We can learn some things about who he is through his creation, which includes you and I. We'll get to that. Second, God is imminent. He is near his creation. The Spirit of God is near, is hovering over the face of the waters. Not only is God above and beyond his creation, but he deeply cares about his creation. Back in the Enlightenment days, Thomas Jefferson is a good illustration of this. Some of the other founding fathers were. They had this understanding of God. God was a, what's called a deistic God. It was like a clockmaker God. He made the clock, wound it up, started it, boom, done. My, I've done my part, right? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has spoken everything into existence, ex nihilo, but maybe you may be wondering, um, Bill, I thought you said earlier that um, nothing comes from nothing. But ex nihilo, out of nothing or from nothing. So didn't you just refute yourself? No, no, I didn't. Listen carefully. Nothing comes from nothing, but God is not nothing. God created. God spoke. <sighs> okay. Especially in our day and age, C is important. Creation is subject to God, not the other way. You have to settle it. Like, seriously, you have to settle it. Are you God or not? Are you the creator or are you the creature? Do you answer to your voice alone or do you answer to the voice of another? Those are your only two options, by the way. That's it. Those are your choices. Choose wisely. And finally, God brings order from chaos. By the way, this is a theme that is repeated throughout the story. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. In an ancient Near Eastern cosmology, the waters stood for chaos. They, the waters weren't like good or bad or evil. They just were, but they stood for chaos. Let me give you a couple instances where this theme is. And what's the Spirit of God doing? Spirit of God is taming those waters. That would have been like, wait, what? No God in an ancient Near Eastern cosmology, no God can do that to waters. What, what do the opening pages of the story assert? Nope, this God can. This God has control even over chaos, can bring order even over. Think uh, the flood, Noah's flood. It's this chaos theme being revisited. And what does, what does God bring out of it? Order. Think uh, the Red Sea. Chaos, what does God bring out of it? Order. So right from the get-go, this, this, this God can control the most powerful forces of nature, can bring order from chaos. When it comes to the question... Who has ultimate say over my life? You only have two possible choices. So I'll bring it personal. When it comes to the question, who has ultimate say over my life? One choice is me. The other choice is not me. That's it, guys. 
It is that simple. It is that basic, and it is that black and white. Who has ultimate and final say over your life? Period. It's either you or it's not you. Again, choose wisely. Do, let me throw a couple questions your way. Do you want a God who makes no demands of you? But a God who makes no demands of you is essentially a God who does not exist, correct? Like, that's not even a thing. Former pastor and theologian Timothy Keller puts it this way. Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Let that sink in. Like, the God you worship? How's that going? Does he, she, it ever rock your boat? Or like everything is in conformity with, yep, I see it that way, I see it that way, I see it that way. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, moving on. Gosh, this is taking longer than I thought. Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> verses, I'm not going to read all this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 25, comma, 29 through 30. I'm intentionally bypassing verses 26, 27, and 28. I'm going to come back and circle around. All I'm going to say about this is there's this incredible poetry going on in these verses. It's called forming and filling. Forming and filling. Days 1, 2, and 3, God is forming. And days 4, 5, and 6, God fills. And if you'll if you'll look at these, at these days, and so, so correspond days one and four, days two and five, and days three and six, and you'll see this forming, filling motif. Days one and four, day one, light and darkness, God creates. Day four, lights to inhabit the day and the night. Day two, sea and sky. Day five, creatures to inhabit the sea and the sky and finally day three land and vegetation and then day six where we come in uh, creatures to inhabit the so it's this incredibly beautiful hebrew poetry of forming and filling forming and filling forming and filling insights from genesis chapter 1 3 through 25 and 29 and 30 god again this ran counter to ancient near eastern cosmology God imposes his goodwill on creation. At the end of each day, or, or not at the end of each, each day, well, God says it's good, it's good, it's good. But we see, this, we see this formula. And God said, and it was so. Every day, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. On and on and on. This is God imposing his goodwill on this creation. That didn't happen. That was not a part of ancient... So, God condescends to meet the Israelites where they're at, but then He begins to take them where He wants them to go. And that is a right understanding of the cosmos and Him as Creator. Okay. 
Genesis 1.31. I think our, I don't think I know. Our Bibles have not, I appreciate chapter verse divisions, right? Quick location of, but whoever did this one did not do it justice because Genesis 1 should not have ended where it ended. Genesis chapter 1 should have ended at Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. So Genesis 1.31 through chapter 2 verse 3. And God saw everything they had made and behold, moral judgment here. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. Um, is there a theme beginning to merge here? Seventh, seventh, seventh. Rest, rest, rest. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. A couple of insights from this passage. Number one, the inherent goodness of creation, which includes the human body. I think, generally speaking, in Protestantism, we have missed the boat here, folks. My opinion, generally speaking, in Protestantism, we don't, we don't ascribe to the body, we don't see it the way the story sees it. We have bought into a very enlightenment, very modernist perspective of the body. Quite literally, mind over matter. We can, it's like it's going to die anyway, right? I can basically do what I want with my body. Really? My question for you is S-E-Z-W-H-O. Says who? Where do you get that from? Where do you get that idea from that you can do whatever you want to your own body? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the story, I'll tell you that. You have drunk, you have, if that's you, you have drunk deeply at the waters of the culture, a very enlightenment, modern, and postmodern culture, because that's not in the story. Our bodies are inherently good and ought to be treated that way. I will go so far, do with this what you want. I will go so far as to say this. In Protestantism, we, we have a, a deep disjunction between the immaterial part of us and the material part of us, between our soul and our body. The story doesn't see it that way. In a very real way and staying true to the story, you can actually say, I am my body, not I have a body. I am my body. Just throw that out there. Okay. Um, the first evaluation, the first judgment in, we see in Scripture is made by God Himself, the very goodness of creation. I think we in the church in America, I think we have bought into a form of, uh, I'll throw a term out at, at you, I think we bought into a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that teaches that the material world is fundamentally bad and evil and is to be avoided. Gnosticism. I think we are prone to a neo-Gnosticism where we don't give this the credit it's due in the story. 
Like we see this as something to be avoided and again to impose our will on. I don't, I don't see it. And secondly, the themes of seven and rest are introduced. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you will see those themes repeated over and over and over. Seven represents, among other things, perfection, completion, rest, Sabbath rest, salvation rest, and on and on and on. Okay, I'm, I'm about to close, but this is going to be a long close. Okay, this is going to be a long close. Are we doing okay? Roasts burning and stuff like that. We, okay, all right. I just, you know. All right. I skipped over verses 26, 27, and 28. We're going to come back to them now because they are supremely important. This is the all-important image of God, otherwise known as Imago Dei. Verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them... Wait, what? Who's the them there? And let them... Interesting, did you... Did you notice the little flip there? And let them, we're going to get to that, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, boom. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, we're going to come back and park on verse 27. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, yada, yada, yada. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28 comes at the climax of the creation narrative. Everything, you have to hear this, everything that has brought, been brought into existence so far has been created in anticipation of this climactic moment. The crowning jewel, if you will, of God's creative enterprise is who? Look around the room. It is you and I, male and female. Notice the divine deliberation in verse 26 preceding this, preceding this so God created. Then God said, let us make... So within the Godhead, there's this conversation happening, this divine deliberation. It is that important. The people who first heard this were the Israelites. You may know this. Coming off 400 years of Egyptian bondage, being inundated by the Egyptian gods, by the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. And now there's an identity crisis all over the place. Who are we? Whose are we? So this is God beginning to help them understand whose they are, and in light of whose they are, who they are. By the way, the same is true today. You can't identify who you are until you've come to the conclusion of whose you are. Are you your own? Okay, a certain identity falls from that. Are you somebody else's? A certain identity falls from that. Are you a creation of the good God, Yahweh? Then your identity follows that. In Genesis chapter 1, first 25 verses, God had given them a new theology. They had been inundated. The generations that initially came to, came, they're long gone, man. So, so these generations, now the people currently living now who have escaped the Egyptian bondage, like they're swimming in Egyptian gods. So here is God giving them a new theology, number one, 
a new cosmology. He meets them where they're at, but he begins to take them to a different kind of understanding of the universe, a different kind of understanding of the cosmos. And third, thirdly, not only a new theology, not only a new cosmology, but also a new anthropology, an understanding of who they are in light of who God is. So important that you grasp that. By the way, that's not going away. In light of who God is, who am I? And interestingly, one of the first things God does with humanity is to give them authority to rule over his good creation. So we have to ask the question, this all-important question, because it sets up the rest of the book. Miss this and you're not going to get the book. What does it mean to be created in God's image? And we're going to let the story tell us. Most every one of the times described in Genesis lived under the rule of a sovereign, of a king, and these kings proclaimed self-proclamation. They proclaimed themselves to be the very image of God or the gods, not the Christian God, okay, but the false gods, to be the very image of those gods, plural, small g. These kings would also create statues of, of, of wood, stone, precious metals, and form and fashion them, and they were said to be the physical embodiment of these gods, i.e. images of God. Yahweh is meeting the people where they're at. So important you understand this. Israel, though, was not allowed, forbidden, to create images of their God. Why? Blows me away. Because God had already done it when he created them. They were not allowed to create images of God because God had already, when he created humanity, male and female, he created images of himself. Question, like, is that how you see yourself? Is that how you fundamentally identify yourself? Because that's how the story fundamentally identifies you. You are the physical embodiment of the invisible God. I tell you what, you get that and that gets in you, game changer. That is a game changer. Not only how you see yourself, but how you see fellow image bearers. Game changer. In a time where the task of acting as a physical embodiment of God to subdue the earth and rule over creation belonged to only a few, God gave this responsibility to every single male and female human being. Glenn Sunshine and Timothy Paget, in their work, The Image Restored, put it this way. In Christianity, our value is in our essence, not our effort. Human beings are created with a dignity conferred upon them by God himself. Dignity, hear this, 
Because we all play this game. Dignity is not a side effect of abilities or ethnicity. It is an honor which we do not earn, but is inherent in a very part of our very nature. You have dignity, and I am to honor that dignity in my interactions, interactions with you. That's what this means. J. Richard Middleton in The Liberating Image piggybacks on this. For just as no pagan temple in the ancient Near East could be complete without the installation of the cult image of the deity to whom the temple was dedicated, so creation in Genesis 1 is not complete or very good until God creates humanity on the sixth day as Imago Dei in order to represent and mediate His divine presence on earth. If you get that, you will never struggle. You'll never struggle with meaning or purpose in this life if you understand that. Verse 27. Now I'm really closing the closing. So God created man, watch this, in his own image. In the image of God, this is Hebrew poetry. There's repetition here for emphasis. This is God himself telling us who his image is. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Who is it? Male and female. This, this would have rocked the ancient world, the very patriarchal world, because women, women were on a lower status in that world. Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me, a woman hearing this, wait, you're, you're telling me I am equal in dignity with any and all Males? That would have been tough to believe. But here it is. It's part of the story. Here it is. The Hebrew word for image almost always refers to idols in the Old Testament. In other words, visible representations of an invisible deity, a carved or hewn statue or copy of a non-physical being. We read this, we blow right by it. This was staggering then. It is still staggering today. The staggering declaration in verse 27 is that this idol statue copy of the Hebrew God is you and I. Male and female human beings. Let that sink in. Insights from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, 28. The Imago Dei serves as the only universal foundation for human value and dignity. Let me park here ever so quickly. Our culture is interested in human rights. Fair? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not, that's not a shocker, right? But to speak human rights language, they have to borrow from this story. They don't get it. You don't get universal human rights on any other story. If people who don't believe in the Bible or the Christian God want to talk universal human rights, they have to borrow that term and that concept from this story. That's the only place it is. Second, our representing and mediating as image, as image bearers is derivative. Here's what I mean by that. You don't get to call the shots. 
Yes, we, are, we have been given the privilege to steward and continue to the creative process of God's good creation, right? But you don't get to do it any way you want. It's derivative. It's an authority from a higher authority. That's why when it comes to our bodies, really, can you... Is our body part of the good creation? Audience response question, yes. Can you do anything you want to it? Not if your authority is derivative. You see what I'm getting at? Finally, the most fundamental aspect of the Imago Dei is our embodied sexed nature as male and female. If the Imago Dei means anything, it means that. If the image of God means anything, it means that. Okay. Closing the closing of the closing. So where's Jesus in this creation account? You're lo looking, um, I don't see the name Jesus here. We have to go all the way to John's gospel to find that. So check this out. John 1, 1 through 3. John is totally, totally borrowing from Genesis 1, 1. Totally. In the beginning was, in the beginning, in the beginning God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now watch this. Where was Jesus? Right here. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. He was right there, man. God created through the Son. He's right there. Boom. The power of story. Don't underestimate it. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm convinced. There's a lot of great stories out there. The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, great stories. This is the story, man. This is the story that makes sense of all the stories. This is the story, singular. And I don't know about you, but I've pretty much staked my eternal life on it. Let's pray.